0: The following is an encore presentation of The Bridge with Peter Mansbridge, first aired on June 6th.
1: And hello there, Peter Mansbridge here. You are just moments away from the latest episode of The Bridge, the Moore Butts Conversation Number Three. That is just ahead. Welcome to Monday. Welcome to another week. Purpose of today's show is the Moore butts conversation number 3. And for those of you who've been with us for a while on the bridge, you know what that means. James Moore, the former Conservative cabinet minister under the governments of Stephen Harper, currently a senior business advisor at the multinational law firm of Dentons and a public policy advisor at the global firm Edelman. James lives in beautiful British Columbia. He's in Vancouver. Gerald Butts is in Ottawa. Gerald Butts is the former senior policy advisor, principal secretary to Justin Trudeau. Now, these two fellows who've being at each other over time, so as they, one a conservative, one a liberal, have agreed for the, they both have a lot of respect for each other, that's clear, and you can see that and hear that in these conversations we've been having. But they both agreed to try and deal with some major issues that confront politics and the people in a nonpartisan way, and that's worked really well through these conversations. Today is the third one, And the issue on the table is leadership. And whether or not we in fact have the right method to pick our leaders. So this is an interesting discussion. And let's get right to it. The Moore Butts conversation number three. Here we go. All right. Well, there are uh, there are more than a few leadership races going on at different levels of, of government in uh, in Canada right now, federal and, and provincial, and different systems use different techniques in terms of how they pick their leaders. But generally, in a general way, do we in Canada pick our political leaders in a way that delivers the best? James,
0: I think so. You know, I. I There's no system that is entirely bulletproof. Electoral systems for leaders within political parties like electoral systems for countries or provinces in general, um, all of them have their flaws and their merits when you're designing a system for example for a country if you have a new emerging democracy or if you have uh, you know or a political party that's just being founded what you you do typically is you you sort of rank the virtues that you want to see come out of a system participation is a virtue diversity is a virtue proportionate engagement of members membership or the public is a virtue Um, you know you you have all kinds of virtues that you aspire to Um, you know strength of mandate um, all these kinds of things and you know you you get first past the post all that so so you try to assert and you can have fundamental debates about what the most important virtues are and the system should align with those virtues. When the Conservative Party was formed, um, coming out of uh, 2002, 2003, uh, and Stephen Harper's, uh, election as leader, um, you know, there was, there was a great debate within the Conservative Party because the Canadian Alliance, which was, which brought a massive membership base, particularly in Western Canada and, and big bases in the province of Ontario, was, seemed to be subsuming the Progressive Conservative Party. And so the party designed our leader, our leadership process at the time to have at the time, 308 ridings across the country. Now there's 338 that's going to bump up to more in the next campaign. But 308 ridings across the country, all of which would have 100 points. And so if you have a riding association in downtown Montreal that might have 17 members, or if you have a riding association in Lethbridge, Alberta, that has 1,700 members, they would all get 100 points. And so you know, the, the party leadership candidates would invest their time in those parts of the country that are the weakest because you get the highest rate of return relative to your investment of energy. Well, there's a virtue in that. But there's also a virtue in recognizing that one member, one vote. So these are tensions that exist within the party. And the party had fierce debates about it. Famously, uh, Peter McKay and Scott Reid, you know, uh, from different backgrounds coming into the new party. Um, They had had real public debates about the the merits of these systems. In the end, though, I think that um, if you are worthy of being the prime minister of canada the ceo of a g7 country if you're worthy of that title and worthy of that office whatever the system is if it's one member one vote 100 points per riding or a delegated convention if you are worthy of governing this complicated country with its myriad of challenges you will find a way to responsibly and effectively succeed in whatever the system is that's in front of you in order to earn that mandate that's my view wow that's quite a belief but whatever the system is the right for the most part, I mean, you know, we we, ha- we hammer these things on, on on the margins, but for the for the most part, I mean, I, you know, if the Conservative Party, for example, went to a full delegated convention, now <clears throat> that would maybe crowd out somebody who is not has as many financial resources. Like if you had to physically get all your delegates in, obviously that tips the scale towards people who are who are who have deeper pockets. That's a problem. Uh, but if you went to pure one member one vote and only digital voting, well, then that opens up to to, some, to somebody who could flood the member with inst- flood the party with instant members who are not particularly committed to the cause. So you have a problem on that end. So the parties could put in guardrails. But broadly speaking, if you look at the differences of the systems that we have federally in Canada or even the provincial ones, for the most part, the, the, the correct – it's almost without exception – the correct person in the moment wins the leadership race if you look at it. In retrospect, you know, some of us who are actors who have been disappointed in, in, in races can can dis- disagree with that. But it's rare that the person who wins the race, a leadership race in almost any political party, wasn't the person who probably should have won all things considered. Yeah, you've got to sort of dig
1: deep into history to, to find perhaps something that would counter that. And you can look at 76 and the conservatives and how Clark sort of came up the middle or the outside or whatever uh, you know example you want to use. Uh, but nobody was picking him going in. Nobody thought of him that way. I mean, I mean, he ended up winning. Anyway, let's bring Jerry in.
2: But I hear what you're saying, James. Jerry, uh, where are you on this? Well, I, excuse me, sorry, Peter. I certainly agree with where James left off. I think that when you conceive of leadership, when you think about leadership candidate campaigns in the context of the political party that is fielding it. It's usually the question on people's minds is, is this um, structure purpose built to serve whatever the political party needs at the time? Right. And uh, I think that's the most important thing in the minds of of, uh, voters within these contests themselves. I do think that by the nature of the diversity of types of leadership, uh, processes we have in different uh, different orders, government amongst different parties, sometimes even. <laughs> And talk. Sometimes even uh, within the same broad political tent, there are diff- very different processes to elect leaders, uh, for instance, for the Ontario Liberal Party than there is for the Liberal Party of Canada. So I think we're served by that diversity and we learn from our mistakes and we adjust as we go along. I, for one, uh, am a big believer in open membership. I'm a big believer in casting the net as wide as possible to create a political party that's as as close a representation of the public at large uh, as possible. And I think, frankly, the change in the leadership process within the Liberal Party of Canada is what saved the party in the 2013 um, uh, 2012-2013 party uh, process, where, you know, it was a reasonably foreseeable conclusion that the Liberal Party could have disappeared. And it didn't, largely because of the leadership campaign uh, of uh, 2013 the reason i you know mentioned 76 and
1: we could we could all all three of us mention other uh, examples that are were similar where we were surprised uh, we, we may have felt the person who won was certainly entitled to win but we may have been surprised by the result or the way it unfolded and i'm just wondering whether the current system does it take surprise out of the equation? I mean, obviously, I like surprise as a journalist—you know, trying to make it interesting—and and there's nothing better than a you know long drawn out day on the convention floor where things happen that you, you weren't assuming might happen. But in terms of today, in a general way, and once again, I know as you've both pointed out that systems are different for different parties and uh, and different levels of government. But in a general way, has
2: surprise been taken out? of the equation? I don't think so, Peter. When you look at the last couple of conservative leadership races, I don't think that those were foregone conclusions from the outset. And as much as been written about how obvious it was that Justin Trudeau was going to be the next leader of the Liberal Party after he became the leader of the Liberal Party, it certainly wasn't obvious at the beginning of that leadership campaign that it was going to happen. Um, we ended up with a process in that campaign that, battle-tested uh, Trudeau as a leader because he was put through his paces for a good, uh, it feels like it was 10 years long, but I think it was something like 10 months long. Uh, it was a very, very long leadership campaign. And uh, uh, I think it was a relative surprise how easily he won. And I, I, I for one, was surprised when Andrew Shear won. I lost an office bet on that. Uh, I think that there was a a reasonable outcome where you could see Peter McKay winning the last conservative leadership. So I don't think surprise is gone, but I do think that we, we, we have a process uh, in most political parties that put the guy or gal through the crucible so that the first tough fight you have
0: isn't with your primary opponent in an election campaign. James, to be fair, within the Conservative Party, I don't think any of our races have been, you know, huge surprises most recently. If you go to the provincial side, though, I think there are a couple of examples that are sort of better surprises. Christy Clark in British Columbia had effectively no caucus support coming on the heels of Gordon Campbell, three majorities in a row, big, strong governing existing caucus coming out of the 2010 uh, Olympics, um, had some tough you know issues with regard to, the, to harmonized taxes and all that. And Christy Clark came off the radio show. She was formerly in the caucus, but had no caucus support at all. Kevin Falcon had the bulk of it and she won. Uh, Alison Redford, uh, in, uh, in Alberta uh, at a time when the party was being seen to be too elite and corrupt and, and insular and uh, all that um, they decided to open up a little bit and I think with reasonable evidence there was you know a, a pretty organized campaign by public sector unions particularly teachers unions to flood the Alberta Progressive Conservative Party at the time with um, basically single-issue members for a one-time vote to get Alison Redford in over a, a more conservative alternative because they had some collective bargaining on the horizon and they thought that she'd be a more um, a peaceful alternative. And at the ta- that time, of course, it was hegemonic power in Alberta. So, so systems can be influenced and parties do try to guard against that. So there have been some surprises uh, on the provincial side, but federally it's more complicated. I mean, this is a, a continental nation uh that is you know second largest country in the si- in size 37th largest in terms of population with all kinds of small p provincial dynamics that in, that do in, inflict their, themselves on our politics that are that are hard to sort of paper over and not have to wrestle and earn a reasonable mandate and if you if you do become leader of a party with a support base that is clearly levered in one direction over another, then that makes your ability to position yourself as a pan-Canadian leader afterwards uh, particularly challenging. You know, you, you made uh,
1: the interesting point about Christy Clark that she did not have any caucus support. And I, I'm wondering not how important caucus support is, but whether caucus alone should be the one making the decision. As you know, in Britain, that, that, that is part of the process there where the caucus basically elects its leader. And there are some who argue that that should be the way, that it's a more natural way that a
0: caucus should should determine who the leader is. Of a well, party. the British Tories pair it down to two candidates and then they go to the members for the final final vote. So, so you can have a suite of candidates. But, but of course, that there's virtues in that system, sure, because you're you're leading a parliamentary faction. But the problem with, not the problem, the difference is between Canadian politics and, and the UK system, one um, is that? that that would obviously uh, have create a perception bias about the virtues of being an elected member versus being an outsider. Um, you know, Brian Mulroney was an outsider. Stephen Harper wasn't a member of the Canadian Alliance caucus before he ran. So, you know, that, that would create real problems for him in terms of leverage. Plus, if you are like Stockwell Day was versus Stephen Harper pre-merger in the Canadian Alliance, he had sort of some tools at his disposal to, to sort of sweeten the deal to make people be more favorable to him. So that's one problem. The second is the nature of of Canadian political culture. It's not just systems. The Canadian political culture is we have a parliamentary system, but we have American style presidential politics. So our campaigns are presidential. Where was Doug Ford today? Where's Del Duca? Where's, Justin Trudeau, or Stephen Harper. So our 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 politics is all about where is the leader and what's the leader doing, and the camera follows them around. But at the end of the day, five out of the last seven elections federally in Canada have yielded minority parliaments. So you have a you have, you're electing somebody who needs to lead a parliamentary faction, but the but their mandate is is derived at through a presidential system of 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 campaigning. So so our our political dynamic is unique relative to other countries. Uh, does our system it, work against
1: um, the true outsider, somebody who has no connection at all to, Paul, you n- rattle off a bunch of names. Most of them had some connection. They may not have had a seat, but they had
0: some connection to the party and were kind of known. Uh, well, he, he, even with the rise of some populism, right? Jack, you know, Jack Layton boasted that he was uh, one of the top voting, getting city councillors in the biggest city of Canada, that sort of institutional anchor, which is, I'm an outsider and I represent real people and I'm on your side but but don't worry I, I still get the institutions and I and I, and I have a little bit of an anchor there that you can don't worry don't have to worry too much about Christy Clark Wren, again Rand is an outsider but she was a former deputy Prime Minister um, you know Stephen Harper I, I remember his campaigns he came from the outside tried to sort of fix the parties and all that but he was a member of Parliament for three years prior to that so so that that, that benefit of, of having some roots uh, is really important now they can get exaggerated um, you know um, Andrew Sherby Speaker of the House, for example, is not necessarily a, a, a particular skill that's beneficial to being prime minister. And sometimes people alternatively boast about their private sector capacities and, in ways that are um, insincere. Well, then we have the ultimate outsider, Pierre Poiliev. <laughs> <laughs> um, Careful.
1: <laughs> let's, not think, cro- let's not cross into the partisan lines here
2: I, 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 that's an inside <laughs> joke um i i think i think there are a couple of things i want to say with this and, about this peter and in general i agree with uh james's points i i'm struggling to think of a liberal leader who was not first a member of the liberal caucus i don't think there has been one i could be wrong about that but uh I don't think I am. Uh, certainly going through the ones in my living memory, they've all been members of caucus before they became leaders. Is that a good thing? At the point in our history where just about everybody who was elected leader of the Liberal Party became Prime Minister of Canada, you could say that was obviously a good thing, raise ipsal and all that stuff. Um, I'm not so sure it is anymore. I think that there's a big difference between being the leader of a parliamentary caucus and being the leader of a political party and having the smaller group choose the representative for the larger one is fraught with a bunch of problems. Uh, For instance, again, appealing my personal experience in this, we had a caucus of, what, 34 people uh, when we chose our leader in 2013 in the Liberal Party of Canada. I'm not sure that caucus would have chosen Justin Trudeau in a private ballot. Um, Maybe they would have. Maybe they wouldn't have. I'm not insinuating either way. I'm just not sure if that's the case. I do know that they would have been voting on behalf of a caucus that turned out to be 184 people strong. So by virtue, almost by the math of being in a small minority party status, when you're seeking to grow uh, into a majority party or a governing party, It's very difficult to say that the smaller caucus has the interests of the larger one um, or adequately represents the interests of the larger one that you wanna see materialize in the future.
0: I think it's really difficult. Well, yeah, and if you have a smaller caucus, sort of it's thirty-four. Or, for example, the you know pre-governing model of the Conservative Party from sort of 4 to fifteen, um, you know, thirty-four liberal members of Parliament. They, they were largely conscripted to the urban centers of Canada, particularly Toronto and Montreal. Well, that's not reflective of the rest of the country. The Conservative Party, prior to the genuine efforts of broadening and having a sort of a pan-Canadian footprint, you know, if we were heavily weighted in Western Canada, um, you know, you would have people who who become very sort of parochial in their interests about you know having a leader who's from their region or from their province because you you do do better in Canadian politics if your leader happens to come from your own province and yeah. also if you, if you have you know, uh, three quarters of the people who are weighing in on who the final two people should be on the ballot, for example, in the British Tory model imposed into Canada, um, you might, if, if you're from Esteban, Saskatchewan, and Prince George, British Columbia, and I'm on B.C., you might not rank, you know, capacity in both official languages higher on your list than, um, you know, fluency and sort of populist politics and, and coalition building in Western Canada. Well, that's good for you in terms of winning maybe your seat and holding your nomination was probably not the best. You know, uh, ranking of virtues for a leader uh, in order to, to win the country. Okay. okay. Right? And the most, the one last point on that, Peter, because right. I think that's an excellent point about regional
2: representation. It's also the case that almost by definition, your watershed leadership campaigns are when you most need a transformational leader. <laughs> and those tend to happen after you've had some form of uh, cataclysmic loss. The kinds of politicians that survive. Those circumstances are not necessarily the kinds that are going to be um, effective at putting together a large governing uh, parliamentary caucus or be representative of the kind of campaign you want to run. The the people that we had in um, almost by definition they survive they survive they survived the political version of a nuclear holocaust, right? You think about the people who made it through the 2011 election for the Liberal Party. There were people who almost by necessity had to ditch the party brand and campaign on their own local popularity. That's not necessarily a uh, cohesive brand or be the kind of um, constituent parts you want to build a bigger political movement out of.
1: Okay, I want to pick up a, on a couple of these points. We're going to take a quick break. Back in a second. I'm
2: just going to let dog it.
1: And we're back. Welcome, uh, Peter Mansbridge here in Toronto on this day for the bridge, and we've got together. Uh, for the third time now in these conversations, and they've really been well received uh, on the part of uh, listeners to the bridge. We've got James Moore, the former Conservative cabinet ministers in Vancouver, and uh, Gerald Butts, former principal secretary to Justin Trudeau in the Prime Minister's office. Uh, he's in Ottawa. Um, I want to pick up a, a little bit on this this theme about the trouble. I, I think. Everybody agrees that exists in in Canadian politics, and that is bringing new people into the system, getting people to run for politics, the right kind of people, the kind of uh, people who could be leaders one day, not necessarily of a party, but of a a major department in uh, in government, Um, and... you know, this has existed for a, a while now. Occasionally there's there's some interesting people come in, but overall I think it's existed for the last 20 or 30 years where it's we have trouble convincing people that they should perhaps run for public office in terms of their public service. Does the leadership method, the method of uh, of determining leadership, which seems, I when mean, I listen to both of you, there seems to be this you know, the, the, this pull towards caucus experience, or at least some caucus experience, does that work against this idea of bringing people who've never been a part of the system into the
0: system? James? I would say no. When, when people are thinking of running for office, there, there are a bunch of other things. I, I spent a, long, a lot, a big part of my mandate, frankly, with Prime Minister Harper, was to try to recruit candidates. You know, the, the further you get from physical down, physical Ottawa, the harder it is to get good quality people to run for office. And my riding was suburban Vancouver, and, I, and I, my riding was typically the beachhead between, my, like, right in the balance of the swing ridings in the Fraser Valley and, and downtown Vancouver and the suburbs of Vancouver. And so, you know, to draw in candidates in the Burnabees and the New Westminster's and all the Vancouver and all that, I spent a lot of time in the 04, 08, 11 elections, even the fifteen elections when I wasn't running, to try to draw in good candidates. To to still carry the party banner because even if they were in ridings that we were not likely to win um, they're still the face of the party and they can step on landmines and all candidates debates and they're still putting up signs and all that stuff so you need a good group of people just um, to, to help the the, the party and, the, and all that and I can tell you having had many many conversations with people who are thinking of running for office that's not really it but I, I do impose on people uh, who are thinking of running for office the question that and, and, and I strongly impose on them the the the, the filter that if you're if you're thinking of running for office, make sure your family is fully aware and sober and clear about the up the, the the grind that you're about to put them through. Assu- you know, assume you're going to win and all of that. Um, be very clear that this is a this is a short term deviation from your regular. Quality of life and, and expectations into uh, a, a new experience, but this is an experience; it's not a job. And also on the question of leadership, make sure that we, you know, that, that if you're running, that you have absolute confidence in the person who is the leader of the party. You know, I, I am seen as a former Conservative cabinet minister, and that, and it is what it is. But, but also in particular, I'm seen as a former Stephen Harper cabinet minister. You might have introduced me that way. Jerry Butts is a former advisor to Justin Trudeau and a federal liberal, and that's that's a particular moment in time. There are Dion Liberals, there are Ignatieff Liberals, there are Stockwell Day Conservatives, there are Aaron O'Toole Conservatives. And And so it's part of the filter that you wear. And you will wear that for the rest of your life. And I do think it's really important for your sense of self-worth, for your sense of identity, for your sense of, of of sort of ethical clarity, that if you're running for office and you're going to be going to your best friends, your closest friends, your neighbors, and everybody in your community, and you're going to say, that person, I believe, needs to be needs to be the prime minister of this country, and I'm going to put my personal credibility on one. Now, it may not mean much in terms of votes at the end of the day, but when politics is over for the rest of your life, people will will look at you and they will judge you based on your judgment of of people that they don't know that you assumed would be the best person to be the prime minister of the country. That's an important personal burden that candidates need to think about, because I, I have had people who ran in... I won't say the the under which leader in which campaign, but I have had people who ran for the party because it was the right time in their life. And they were really passionate because they thought we needed change. and They really believe in certain policies they want. And they and they believe in sort of the veneer of what the party leader was. And they would have run in any election. But that person happened to be the leader, but they chose to buy in. And then the campaign fell apart, didn't work out. The leader turned out to be not what they thought the, the person was. And then they're sort of forever embarrassed. And they, to this day, still say to me, say, I can't believe I went around and said that, that guy should have been prime minister. Like, my God. And you don't want that burden. Like, you you, you should... you. The timing needs to be right for you. You have to have a purpose of why you're in public life and you have to believe in your leader. And it's because you're going to, you're going to wear that association personally and with your small sphere of friends and family for the rest of your life. So, so I think it really does matter. I love that story. Okay, Jerry, yeah. let's see you beat that
2: one. <laughs> well, it's a tough one to beat, Peter, but I think starting with the personal is the right way to go. Not unlike James, it was part of my remit, uh, and we had a lot of open seats to recruit for. Right at the time, it was both the upside and the downside of having a small caucus. We were, we had no nothing but opportunities for people. You can put it that way. I I've been involved in recruiting. I don't know, conservatively speaking, six hundred people over the course of my two stints in politics. And I always ask the same two questions. And one of them comes from my aunt, sister Peggy, who you knew quite well. I think Peter back in the day when she was in the Senate of Canada. Um she, she I, and it's, it's the advice she gave me when I uh, told her I was thinking about getting involved in politics to work for Dalton McGinty back in 2002 or whatever it was. And she said, um, there's only really one question you have to ask yourself. And that is, is this a guy who wants to be something or is he someone who wants to do something? Because politics is full of the former and there are precious few of the latter. And if you decide he's the latter, then you should support him because people like that need support so that's, that's the first thing. And I've repeated anyone who I've ever talked to about running for office would tell you that I asked them that question. And then the second one, which I think is even more personal is, do you know who you are? Because, uh, who you are comes out in a political campaign and you don't want to be the last person to know who that is. Right. Mm -hmm. So you have a, you have to have a pretty centered sense of yourself and you have to have, um, a pretty clear idea of what you want to do once you get there. And if one of those two things is lacking, then politics is probably not for you and
0: it will make you really unhappy. I'll tell, I'll tell you another story. And then and, and this one I will name names just because why the hell not?
2: <laughs> What's no, the worst I, that could happen, James? Yeah, whatever.
0: No, I, I was elected at the age of 24. Everything was going great. The Canadian Alliance, here we go. Uh, the party falls apart. Like, you know, we're straight out of the gate. We go into the Civil War that, you know, political observers, you know, those who remember that time, it was really, really dark. And I was, you know, young Turk, full of energy, ready to go. Uh, I was elected with a group of people. You know, Brian Pallister was a rookie, Vic Taves was a rookie, James Rajat, myself. Uh, you know, we came to Ottawa and we were, we were ready to and we got to Ottawa. We found a bunch of colleagues who had been there since 1993 who had now lost three elections, or, well, effectively three elections in a row, uh, and were, were just angry and ornery, and they wanted to get rid of stock all day. So then, the, you know but I was still optimistic about things I wasn't in revenge mode I was in hey let's build and move forward mode and it was it didn't take very long frankly for me uh, even though he's a friend if, for, to me to realize sitting in a bunch of caucus meetings that Stockwell Day was not suited to be leader or, or prime minister of the country I like Stock a lot he might have been a good cabinet minister in Alberta in my mindset might have been a good cabinet minister in Alberta but he's, he's not he's not ready to be prime minister of this country so I mean I can either try to tear him down with no alternative or I can invest my energy into someone I did believe in which is Stephen Harper and I did. And I remember at one point in the campaign, Gestalt, well, they had the support of about two thirds of caucus at the time. You know, leaning on what, what I said earlier about the biases of, of, of that sort of institutional support from caucus for existing leaders, because these people in caucus got elected under that leader, so therefore. Um, so it was about two-thirds, one-third Stockwell Day support over Stephen Harper. Stephen Harper was running from the outside, he comes from a very middle-class background, didn't have the office of the leader of the opposition and all that to support him. He had to self-finance and all that. So it was it was tough. And there was a point in the, in the cycle where it didn't look like Stephen was going to beat Stockwell Day for the Canadian Alliance leadership. And I remember sitting in Parliament when Day with James Rajot, we were in A's, We were sitting in the fourth row in the opposition benches, and things couldn't have been more miserable. Stephen was not likely going to win. It was tough. Stock was signing up members. Uh, it was it was bad. And I remember looking across uh, the floor of Parliament, <clears throat> and there was John Manley. At the time, he was the member of the Minister of everything. I think he was Finance, Public Safety, Deputy Prime Minister, and all that. And he was fielding questions in both French and English from from our side. And he was answering questions about Afghanistan and 9-11 and what's happening there, marshals, and all these questions and all that. And he was just doing it really effectively and just just responsibly. Might, might not have agreed with him, but it was just like, yeah, there's a, just a sturdy, smart guy who's just leading things effectively in the time. He was going to be the, the principal alternative to Paul Martin. And I remember looking at James Rajat and saying, you know, I can't. If Stephen loses or backs out and this doesn't work out, and if John Manley is the leader of the Liberal Party, I can't go to my friends and family in suburban Vancouver and say that Stockwell Day would be a better prime minister than John Manley. Like, I can't say that. It's not true. Like, I might agree with Stock on more of the issues just on paper. But in terms of capacity and just ability to lead, it's, it's objectively not true that Stockwell Day would have been a better prime minister than John Manley. So like if, if, Stephen, does, if Stephen doesn't win, I can't run again. That's, I can't do that. And so I, you know, fortunately, you know, things obviously turned turned out differently. But I remember that conversation. I remember James agreeing, and we were just like, "Yeah, like this is not, um, you know, like, like the, there are some things that are more important, and, and like you, you can't just be a hack. You have to sometimes take off your lens and realize that in this moment, like this is this is the way. This is you have to be sober about the 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 people who are who are offering for prime minister now in every leadership race. By the way, Stephen Harper go went on to win the leadership. <clears throat> And Scott Bryson crossed the floor to liberals and John Heron, uh, who was a progressive conservative, he left the caucus and Rick Baracic left and went back to Manitoba. And Keith Martin, who was a Reform Party colleague of uh, Stephen Harper's, he left. So a bunch of people still left because they maybe had a different perspective. But my perspective at the time was that, you know, you you do have to believe in your leader. And when Stephen Harper my – I'll end the story this way – when Stephen Harper won and then, you know, his political career ended after, after the 2015 campaign and he went to the private sector, there was a, there was an event for Stephen on his going away. And I said to him, as I said, I didn't run for office. I said, I looked at him, I said, I said, Prime Minister, I said, I didn't run for office and you happen to be my leader. I ran for office because you were my leader. And I encourage everybody who runs for office that you you want to be, believe me from my experience, you want to be able to say that when you leave politics, that you're proud of what you did, who you did it with and who your leader was. I'm really glad you told that story because
1: I think most Canadians have no idea that, um, that MPs go through that process when big decisions like that in terms of the leadership of their party is coming up and it's uh, it's
0: encouraging to know they do i'm not sure they all do but clearly you well, did and well about that but about that peter sorry to interrupt but full honesty james rajat at the time was i think 29 i was 25 26 not married no kid no 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 son my son spencer uh, you know, I was still buying my first home. So I didn't have any of those sort of pressures of sort of family obligation, mortgage. No. So but if you take a member of parliament who's in their mid 40s, late early 50s, and, and they're in that period in their life, it's, it's easy for me to be righteous, like I just said. But other people have other pressures that may cloud some of that, which is what it is. And it's not unvirtuous, but but there, there are some real human elements here. When you're when people are in their prime earning years of their lives, and they're strategically making a decision not just about what's best for my party, what's best for my ideas and my ideology, but also what's best for me, and so these tensions do collide, and there's no, um, you know, there's no clear virtuous singular path, but we have to be mindful that. You know, politicians are human beings who are who are under a lot of pressure from a lot of directions. Well, now you're making a good argument for term limits and getting more
1: younger people into <laughs> into running for parliament. Interesting. Uh, before I move on, Jerry, do you want to add anything to uh, to what um, James just said? No. I look. I think that too few people realize that the politicians are people. You know,
2: and they are at various, varying, different stages of life where they have. Um, different motivations. I I think, I'm one who thinks that, and I'm not generalizing. I'm not being specific with my own party. Most of the people that I've met who are elected officials, and I mean most 85, 90% of the people I've met who are elected officials for all parties are really good people who are in it for the right reasons. And you may differ with their perspective on any given issue or the overall direction of the country, but most of the people that I know who put their names on lawn signs do it out of a sense of community and public service. And uh, it's easy to take down a good living running down politicians. But long term, and maybe we can get into this in the second half of the conversation, it's getting harder and harder to recruit people to run uh, for office. And that's because the, public's, the public square, the town square, has been flooded with toxic sludge. And if we want a uh, political culture that more closely resembles that that of our neighbors south of the border, we should keep going in this direction because, almost by definition, you attract people whose. Uh, sense of self is impervious to that kind of sludge. So I don't think that's the direction we want to go. And I don't want to be one of those people who used to be involved in politics. It says there was a golden era where, you know, it was nothing but respectful disagreements on all sides of the house. That's obviously not true. But I think we can all agree that the turn that politics has taken in the last five years or so in this country. uh, partly, but not entirely, due to the advent of social media and the targeting of politicians in their homes, um, it's not good for the country. No, it's not. Um, you'll be happy to know we are already,
1: uh, are already in the second half of this conversation. <laughs> in fact, we're almost at the end of the second half of this conversation. But you, the, but those points are all good ones and may, may well form the basis uh, of our next conversation when we get together. The next time. Here's my last question and I, I, I raise it carefully because uh, I don't want either of you to have to fall into any you know, partisan roles here but are there lessons for all of us in the way the current leadership at the federal level, the conservative leadership race is, is unfolding are there lessons about the system in what we're watching uh, right now James, do you want to try that one?
0: No, I mean, I, I think it's generally working well. <clears throat> the the system that we, it's they've, they've, the system has been modified, right? So we don't have just purely 100 points per rodding. There's a floor that, that roddings have to have for old ones. But, but I, I don't think, and, and we've gone under a pretty significant stress test the Conservative Party has with leadership races, because we're getting really good at it, <laughs> you know? But I mean, at, at, in the 2017 leadership race, um, there were, at, I think, at the peak, in terms of people who sort of were thought about running and didn't run, but sort of tested the system, there were probably 18 or 19 people thought about running. And of course, the final ballot was a little bit less than that. But it, it went to what, 12, 13 ballots. And Andrew Shear won a 51-49 final, final ballot. So that's a tremendous amount of stress on the party, its membership, its infrastructure coming out of a defeat in 2015. Um, you know, we had good ballots, obviously, parliament the parliamentary side with Ron Ambrose, uh, for sure. But that's a tremendous amount of stress, particularly because people were running from different ideological and regional perspectives. And then the following one, you know, Peter McKay versus Aaron O'Toole versus Leslie Lewis, uh, and there were other candidates who thought of a running, that also created its own stresses and its own um, aftermath. And then this race as well, which has become rhetorically more divisive, I think on the ground amongst party members, there's actually probably less division than there is amongst the candidates. I mean, on the ground, I mean, I, I talked to people who are, just yesterday, as a matter of fact, I was at an event at the Vancouver Board of Trade, and there was a staunch Jean Charest supporter and a staunch Pierre Poilievre supporter, and they were really good friends, and they were saying, "Wow, well, my guy, your guy," and, and it was, and it was not like there wasn't a lot of heat because they they just have different views on who the best person is to unite the party and defeat defeat the Liberals, but but between them, there's not a lot of heat. So the party, I think, has learned and. Um, and and the, the dynamic within the party right now is the party just really wants to win, which is feeding the heat, which is feeding the heat between the candidates. But the party is pretty united on the ground. So so I think through the, the races that we've had, because we did go through a big dry spell between Stephen Harper's leadership uh, in, in the mid aughts through until 2015. But now we've had three leadership races since 2017. So so through that sort of muscle memory, I think the party has learned to sort of absorb the tensions of a leadership race. And now we have we have candidates who have differing levels of caucus support. Uh, Patrick Brown just put out a, an email just right now saying that he's signed up 150,000 party members. If that's true, then that's you know he's he's trying to win the leadership in a, in a different way. So um, there are, there are tensions, but I think the party, the Conservative Party, I think will survive those tensions uh, on the ground. Um, the tensions between the candidates may be um, a, a little bit harder to to, to mend.
1: Got to be, we all got to be careful with these numbers as they start to roll out yeah. because, as you oh, pointed yeah. out earlier. <laughs> Uh you know the numbers are one thing where they are from, which province, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, uh, yeah. can make a big difference. You get the last word, Jury. And whether they
2: actually vote and that's, of course the right. most important thing. Uh, I think look, my my own diagnosis of the Conservative Party's challenges are that it's become captive to its relatively small, non-representative base of donors. So The issue for me, if I were thinking as a conservative, uh, would be, how do we grow beyond the space that is self-evidently not enough to win uh, government in the country? And it remains to be seen whether this leadership process serves that, but it has certainly attracted uh, candidates with the potential to broaden that tent. So I think you have to give a provisional vote of positive vote to the conservative leadership process because it's attracted a good quality of candidates well i think on
1: that uh that positive note uh, we'll end this uh this this um, conversation between the two of you which as i said earlier is, is the third one we've had and they get better every time um i love this one i love the stories you guys told and we will uh, we'll keep it going we'll try to come up with something in the during the summer that can uh, perhaps expand on this whole issue of trying to get somehow people, more people into the end uh, of the process. Uh, but for this, for this time, thank you so much. Enjoy uh, the summer as you see it unfolding. Now we're in June. Great to talk to you, James and Jerry.
2: Thank you. Always a pleasure, Peter.
1: Well, there you go. The uh, third installment of the conversations between James Moore and Gerald Butts, uh, a conservative and a liberal, and uh, talking in a constructive way about the process that we uh, see around in this particular case, the leadership of the uh, political parties and how that uh, decision uh, is made, and whether it's in really in the best interests of uh, the people or is it in the best interests of the party. Or what is the mix that is appropriate? Anyway, I hope you enjoyed it, uh, just along with the other uh, two conversations uh, so far between uh, Moore and Butts. And there will be more. Uh, you can be sure of that, because they've been extremely popular. Uh, you've been uh, listening on Sirius XM, Channel 167, Canada Talks, and on your favourite podcast platform. I'm Peter Mansbridge. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you again. <coughs>
0: You've been listening to an encore presentation of The Bridge with Peter Mansbridge, first aired on June 6th.